Hello, and welcome to the Identity Paradox Inside the Racial Pharmacon, a podcast examining anti-racist theories and practices aimed at dismantling destructive identitarian politics and ideologies, both in the U.S. and abroad. Please note that discussions deal with very difficult subject matter, so every episode comes with a general content warning. And I'm your host, Carlos Gallego, Associate Professor of English, as well as both Distinguished Teaching Professor in Humanities here at St. Olaf College. This podcast is part of the programming brought to you by the Bolt Chair Endowment. So special thanks to the Bolt family for making this programming possible. If you enjoyed today's podcast, make sure to subscribe for future episodes. And now, the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Identity uh, Paradox. I'm your host, Carlos Gallego. And today I'm very happy to have a, a special guest. Uh, we're recording on uh, what is today? Uh, February 23rd is like two days after the previous recording. So yeah, if I look tired, I am tired. And I'm wearing black because I'm doing the Johnny Cash thing. It's like, I'm just going to keep wearing black till there's world peace and no hunger and no poverty. So I doubt it's going to last, but at least for today. Anyway, today's special guest is Nick Cruz, a citizen journalist uh, who is also the co-founder of the Revolutionary Blackout network uh he's very much an activist uh he's got a youtube channel uh and he's uh in conversation to say the least if not coalition building with other activists uh on social media and on the ground so welcome nick thank you for being uh a guest today on the podcast yeah i appreciate having me on carlos should be a conversation I'm looking forward to it. So uh, prior to all this, we were, uh, I know you don't get to hear the hot takes, but, or hot mics rather, but uh, Nick and I were just talking about the fact that, you know, we've never met. We just spent like 10 minutes getting to know each other and we have at least martial arts in common, if not a lot of other stuff. And we'll probably get to that in a sec, but I just wanted to explain to the audience that I came to uh, Nick's uh, YouTube channel and Nick's community of activists uh, via some friends that I have back in Arizona, specifically Cesar de Marcella, shout out to you too, uh, because when I was in Arizona doing some research on the uh, border immigration crisis uh, and I was staying with them, uh, I noticed that they weren't watching network news They were getting a lot of their news feeds and a lot of kind of like what's up today in the US and the world from uh, YouTube and specifically uh, places like The Hill and other podcasters. And so uh, they're the ones that said, hey, if you want to uh, talk to or investigate, look into some uh, people that uh, we believe are on the ground and doing some serious work, you should check out uh, the Revolutionary Blackout Network. So I did. And they specifically, uh, I was like, ah, oh, should, should I contact Compton J? Should I contact, go, contact Nick? You go, get get a hold of Nick because I feel like Nick's got it down, you know, like he knows what he's talking about. And Compton J is super cool. If you're getting them both, that'd be awesome. And I know you guys have a show. Uh, we're about to get him, but he's live right now. <laughs> I know. So it was like, he's hard. To, so he's just, go get Nick. So thank you for joining the program today. Uh, so I just want to start briefly before we get into like why I, wanted to reach out to you and have this conversation. First and foremost, if you want to give just a brief description and background of what the Revolutionary Blackout Network is in the first place. Yeah, so the, the Revolutionary Blackout Network, we are an independent uh, network that is hosted by all Black hosts. And uh, we present news from an unapologetic point of view of advocating for the Black working class and building solidarity with other communities as well. Uh, we are bombarded with constant capitalist propaganda. So it's about time to left fights back. And that's unapologetic what our, our channel is going to do. Okay. 
Fantastic. Can I ask, what was the motivation behind forming the Revolutionary Blackout Network? Because my friends uh, back in Arizona described that there was a uh, Fred Hampton leftist kind of group, which I was really excited about. But uh, I looked at, to the research and there was only like seven episodes, I think, available and then just kind of disappeared. Yeah. yeah. So the, the idea behind having an all black network is when we watch media and when you look at the anti-establishment black mind, which is very, very plentiful, despite what the narrative is, uh, none of our ideas are ever represented anywhere. I don't, I don't even know if people outside the black community know this. Like when you turn on MSNBC and you see Joanne Reed, she is not representative of the black community. She's a millionaire. She is a millionaire. When you see Dr. Jason Johnson, he is not rep representative of the working class black American. Once again, we look at another millionaire uh, sorry, yeah, I think he's a millionaire. I'm pretty sure he is. They all get paid a ton of money. Yeah, they so do. <laughs> they, they were, and then you had Don Lemon on CNN. Once again, multi-multi-millionaire, no connections to the Black community. And this is such a long answer to give, but these people, they are there for a reason. They are there to serve white supremacy. They're there to serve capital. And I even wrote an, an entire op-ed outlining how this is and what they do in order to prop up white supremacy. So then I'm like, okay, so let's look at independent media, right? Because that was most people in my generation, we focus on independent media. And there are a lot of independent media channels I like, but one thing that we can't help but notice that because the barrier of getting to media is so high in, in terms of tech, learning, all this kind of stuff, there's not any real black voices on independent networks. Like you have a, maybe a few people sprinkled every once, in a, every, every once in a while. And then among the, like the biggest progressive channels, like, you're looking at TYT, Majority Report, uh, for example, just on, on, just on top of my head, David Pacman. These are all white channels, right? And the biggest independent uh, uh, left media source that we had, the, the political faction that's supposed to represent and fight for working class and black and brown people, the messaging that's coming out of left media is not coming from black or brown people that from the working class. TYT, Majority Report, they're all millionaires, just like MSNBC and CNN. So my question, my thing, Carlos, to answer your question directly, we did this because like, all right, we need someone to talk about black issues. No one is doing it. And, and if they do talk about black issues, they do it in a woefully inadequate way. So it's one of the things you gotta be the change you wanna see. So we wanna see more black people in the pen media. So we did it ourselves. And um, we, we started last year and now we're in the crazy position we're in now. Um, so that's the prime motivation behind it. Yeah, you're getting attention now, right? And getting into debates and conversations. Yeah, we've been a shot. And the reason why I said we need a platform of Black leftists and Black Marxists is because ever since we had a platform, we have been a shock to the white neoliberal establishment and, and even the white progressive establishment. Because a lot of times these people, they prop themselves up as white saviors. That, oh, I'm going to speak on behalf of the Black community. Oh, we're going to speak out against racism. And then you have the people who are actually living this shit we're like, you guys are not actually doing a good job of this. Like, and then we have our point of view. And they and that's when they realize, oh, we don't actually align with the people we say we fight for, right? And that's why we've been shocked. And that's what we, I advocate, I want to see more stuff like this. Like we're a black network. I would love to see an indigenous ran network. I would love to see a Latino ran network, like a Muslim network. And the only reason I say this is because there's some things, even as a black marchers, I'm going to miss. If you're a Latino, there's some issues I'm going to miss. If you're a Muslim and you're struggling under U.S. empire, there are things I'm going to miss. So we had to have a black network because there are things, even if you are the best intentioned white leftist, 
you are going to miss. So that's the motivation. That's an excellent answer. And I agree with you. Not all, not no one single individual is going to be on top of all the social, economic, cultural problems that one country, let alone the world, is dealing with at this point. And I say the world because of the geopolitical situation going on in the Ukraine. So you're absolutely right. It's very important for each community to kind of carry its own weight in terms of representing itself and giving its own voice, which in many ways was supposed to be what came out of the 1960s. And then the 70s was a really confusing decade. And then the 80s said, like, never mind, we're taking the 60s back. But we can get into that. Yeah, the liberal establishment, I actually want to I want to pair it uh, yeah. what you were saying here. The liberal establishment did an amazing job of hijacking identity politics. Oh, yeah. Like it did, and I'm sure you know, Diddy Politics was written about a lot of uh, regarding uh, Black Marxist authors, and they talk about building uh, like this class solidarity, connecting our struggles, connecting our issues. And the neoliberal establishment, they kind of turned that into, hey, I'm a Black person, I'm in charge, so this is good. That's not what it is. And they did it on purpose because they know the true revolutionary thought behind the identity politics is actually a challenge, is actually a threat to power. Uh, but anyway, I'll pass it back to you. I just want to add that part. <laughs> no, no, I'm a, I'm on a double parrot, I guess. Off of you. <laughs> and uh, I just, you know, true story. I had my dissertation at Stanford rejected because it was a critique. It was a Marxist Freudian critique of identity politics as essentially feeding into the neoliberal multicultural model that would be appropriate under the United Colors of Benetton slogan, right? And I want to uh, read, read that. <laughs> well, that. That's the one that got rejected, which ironically ended up being my first published monograph. My first book that I published is that dissertation that got rejected from Stanford. Okay, since it's, since it wasn't published or whatever, I don't know a ton about. It's academia. published now. It's under. Okay, a okay. Title. I, was, I, yeah. I, actually, I don't know a ton about academia to be honest. Yeah, but no. I, I definitely gotta have you on, man. I, I I would love to talk to you about that because that's something I've been rallying uh, railing against. Um, and there are people who are, and you see this all the time: the people who shoo shoo identity politics. They like, oh, identity politics. And I understand why they do that. The reason why they do it because they see Kamala Harris say, oh, I'm the black female vice president. They see that version of identity politics and they think it's bad. And I've been trying to re-educate people. I've done it on my channel. I know why you instinctively want to reject identity politics because of people like Kamala Harris, but let's not allow the liberal establishment to hijack our terms and hijack that. But anyway, I want, I want to get your thoughts on that, Carlos. No, well, uh, well, A, thank you for you know saying that you would like to have me on the show. B, please keep talking as much as you want because you're now starting to act like a host and I'm not, and I'm the guest. It's like, please keep talking, Carlos. Like, no, you keep talking. So we're going to have to navigate that. And third, uh, yeah, I was doing this back in the like mid to late 90s. It was difficult to make this argument back then because everybody was promoting identity politics. I would have professors tell me, Carlos, if we get rid of identity politics, what do we have left? Like, there's nothing. And I'm like, are you serious? Like, so it's like, we're going to engage in anti-poverty campaigns to make sure there's a little bit of poverty left. Because if we get rid of poverty, what are we going to do as the anti-poverty campaigns? Like, this doesn't make any sense to me. But these are people like elected politicians, and we'll make those connections later. We're more interested in maintaining their kind of niche positions of power and influence over other people than they are in actually promoting the politics behind some of these theories that they include in their academic writings right so at the end of the day it's like you're you're talking to talk but you are not even 
that you, you don't even want to begin to walk the walk because you're afraid of the fact that that might leave you with a whole new field you have to become an expert in in order to teach it uh, and have a and have a gig. So I was astounded at the amount of pushback that I got because I was against identity politics. And ironically, back then, the people that were paying attention to me were the conservatives saying like, hell yeah, Carlos, until they found out I was coming from like an anti-capitalist Marxist place. Yeah. And they were like, oh, no, like not this dude. Right. So anyway, yeah, I'd be more than happy to talk about that because that's making a great comeback right now as a way of dividing an emerging upper. What I think happened in many ways, the pandemic exposed a lot of the contradictions of neoliberalism in terms of who counts as a human being slash worker and who doesn't and who gets the benefits of that and who doesn't, how much the government actually cares about your individual health and how much it doesn't and how much it needs you to just be a simple cog in the machine as a worker and how much they value you outside of being a cog in the machine as a worker, like when you're at home and do they care about you when you're doing that kind of stuff. So I think that in, on top of the George Floyd uprisings, the pandemic just exploded all these contradictions. And that's what the state is responding to right now, which is why you're saying like, is it a coincidence that now that the Democrats are being exposed as fraudulent in terms of their promises, we're on the verge of going to a pseudo war? Like, damn, that is side of a playbook as far as I'm concerned. Any yeah. thoughts on that, Nick, before we move on? <laughs> yeah, the Democratic Party, as well as the Republican Party, they both play up the cultural war issues because uh, they serve the same donor class. So since both class, both parties uh, don't represent the workers, their goal is to, hey, I, I am against abortion. Join me. I am for ab abortion. Join me. That's all they have. And that's... I'm all they plan on uh, running on and one and one last point i want to get, get your thoughts carlos because i've also been rallying against like the cultural war against critical race theory right where the right wing loses their mind about critical race theory and and the point i bring up because once again as a black leftist i am a shock to the white liberal establishment because we also have seen the white liberal establishment uh they attempt to fight the right wing cultural war against critical race theory but i'm like whoa whoa, whoa wait a minute Critical race theory talks about the institutional structures that enables racism. Who built that? That's Biden. So how can and so you see how both sides frustrate me? One side go super crazy against critical race theory, and then you have another side who think they know what critical race theory is, and their attempt to defend it actually hurts us because they don't actually know what it is. Because they don't want to talk about like the histories of settler colonialism, imperialist wars, and all the uh, how we got to this point in the first place, right? And in my mind, it's like you can teach critical race theory without calling it critical race theory. Just call it like factual American history. History, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we round we say the same thing. That's exactly what I say. Too. I mean, and I tell my students this all the time. It's like I teach critical race theory all day, every day, because it's like presidents say, yeah, George Washington owned slaves. That's a fact. If you don't like it, you don't need to like it, but yeah, that's not going to go away just because you don't want it to go away, right? So it's very... was the one who say facts over your feelings. So it's funny how the yeah. facts over the feelings crowd, now they want to hide facts because it hurts Timmy's little feelings, right? Or Ben Shapiro, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> same, same type of people. Uh, facts don't care about your feelings. That's the Shapiro one, right? Um, so I think that we're we're politically kind of, you know, in line in terms of what we see to be some of the systemic problems. And I want to get to that. But first, in terms of describing the evolution of Revolutionary Blackout Network, and what I see as the kind of, uh, I don't know what you would call it, Nick, but it's, it's almost like this YouTube influencer sphere, right? That's kind of created its own bubble, even within the world of social media, where it's like, if you want politics, and I think that, you know, conservatives and the right got on that 
quicker than the left caught on in terms of like, oh, yeah, maybe we should reach a, a larger audience. But in many ways, I, I think that you're absolutely right. I think a lot of left established leftist politicians and uh, intellectuals are not necessarily interested in reaching wider audiences, if it's not some kind of television ad, or if it's not an appearance on a network television show or things of that nature, right? So like coming onto a podcast, doing things of that nature, when it's like people from the ground, activists like yourself, trying to raise awareness around certain issues and certain contradictions in the system, I don't necessarily see uh, people that are established quote unquote established leftist doing much of that work. So this emergence of a kind of leftist independent journalism, independent commentary on politics, I think is happening and it's new. So my question to you, or one of the first questions is, how do you differentiate? And this is going on right now because there's a lot of like back and forth between different groups that all call themselves leftists and they call, you're not a leftist, you're a moderate or you're a lib or you're all these other things. So how would you describe or help people differentiate. If you're going to educate someone who's like, oh, I want, I want to get into people like, you know, Nick, and I want to start listening to things like the Revolutionary Blackout Network, but I don't want to go down the algorithm rabbit hole that a lot of people are actually playing to, right? Like you mentioned the Young Turks. I remember back when they were like not very popular. We're talking years ago, right? And they suddenly exploded. And my homies back in Arizona, it's like, that's because they got a lot of funding corporate funding in the background that said like we like what you're doing just stay on message in terms of these talking points and you can have all this funding right um and that other people who notice that start to compete for that it's got a minority report and everybody's trying to get to a certain kind of status which to me is kind of extremely if not disappointing kind of disgusting because that's not what a leftist should aim for it's not fame and fortune if i if i wanted to cash out i could have cashed out like i i I had a decent amount of followers on Twitter. You guys know I could have easily been like took the Candace Owens route. I could have easily took like, oh man, I left the Democratic Party, the Republican Party is great, and got a, got a ton of followers on. I, I could even been the black guy like, yo, vote for the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is great for black people, and then a ton of liberals will follow me. Now we there are a lot of people in this fear that we take the path of of uh, the hardest path, right? And there's some people who take the path of least resistance. A lot, there are a lot of things that we talk about that's not going to make us popular, especially considering that white people are the majority of the population, and we purposely talk about things that make a lot of white people uncomfortable. So it's not. It's about like being on message because they're already a media establishment, MSNBC and CNN. So personally, I don't understand why anyone would like get on the internet and watch someone who just like MSNBC and CNN. The whole point is we're supposed to be countering their narrative instead of repeating them. And like you see, like for like RussiaGate is like the prime example. We're supposed to be uh, debunking. Uh, mainstream narrative, right? Instead of carrying water for it, like uh, uncritically, like the majority report in TYT did. So there's like two two independent media left. So it's so complicated. I know it can be hard to get people understanding because you have the establishment media. This is the CNN, MSNBCs, and then you got independent me- independent media, and then within the independent sphere, you got the old independent left media, and now this new emergence of uh, independent media that kind of response of the failures of the old left, where you see them sell out, you see them try to do uh, things just for clicks instead. While channels like mine, we want to give voices to people who don't have one, like black leftists. And there are a lot of people on our platform on our show as well that I think they need to have a voice that need to be amplified. And uh, and the reason why we do this, um, I, don't know, I don't know if you wanted, wanted to ask this or not, but like there's been a corporate media blanket propaganda on, on the airwaves, right? 
And now with the establishment adjusting to the new freedom of inf uh, the change of information, the yeah. internet, now they are teaming up with big tech oligarchy to censor dissent on social media. I know a lot of great friends who was like censored off of YouTube and Twitter for literally nothing, pretty much just uh, going against state department. So the reason why you see this new giant collection of media on the new left that is arising, which went, which in my in my community, is because we kind of we gotta kind of have each other's back because we going up against big tech uh, censorship. We dealing with insane propaganda, so we gotta just blast this message out because without education, there's zero, zero chance of a revolution, zero chance of increasing worker power, and I just see there's so many people brainwashed. Um, we, in my opinion, I think everyone who can. Should probably have a YouTube channel where they can debunk this stuff. I think we need more, honestly. No, and and I think that's an excellent point. And you're one of many activists to talk about that. Instead of having ten channels with a hundred thousand subscribers, to have a hundred thousand channels with ten subscribers, because that way the message is getting out there, and we know for sure. And it's not just one voice. There's a multiplicity of perspectives on the same issue. Many of those people agree, but they don't know that they agree until they're actually out there talking, like you and me doing this right now. It's like, oh, we have a lot in common. I like what you're doing. This is excellent, and I completely agree with you. That that it starts with education. So educate us. So what if I'm watching this and I turn on, say, I just, okay, I'll watch how uh, CJ and Nick show, fine. And I turn it in and then I see the cash app Venmo thing and I'm like, ah, they're grifters. Explain to people why that is not necessarily a grift where you're looking to buy a quarter million dollar car for yourself. Yeah, so when you're in independent media, we're not taking any sort of corporate money. So I don't understand why people will call independent journalists who make pennies a grifter. Meanwhile, Rachel Maddow, who I think she's not on MSNBC anymore, but she used to make $30,000 per day. But that's not grifting, right? So the only way that our channel even existed in the first place, the only reason independent media exists, as we know, in the first place, is because of this new invention called the media. I'm oh, sorry, the internet, right? So before the internet, in order to be on CNN, you essentially had to be a corporate lackey. And in order to be hired at New York Times and Washington Post, you have to know a guy who knows a guy. And then you get, you, you're in that circle and you know they, they know you advocate for capitalism. It's a very narrow club that was allowed in media. Like it would be legacy people like, oh, I knew uh, you used to work at New York Times. So you're, I'll give your son a job at New York Times. So I want people to understand, like when you see CNN and MSNBC hosts, they're not inherently talented. They get those positions because of people they know. So, and because they are funded by corporate cash, they are able to blanket and dominate the airwaves. So what we need to do is we need to counteract that by having grassroots funded or, uh, independent media that is not beholden to weapon defense contractors, that is not beholden to capital. And honestly, like when you edit videos, when you go live, when you're preparing the story, that's a lot of work. And as Marxists, we're not supposed to believe that people are supposed to work for free. Marxists are pro giving you the value of your labor. So if I'm doing independent media, which as a mark, I'll give everyone stuff for free. Everyone, all my content is for free. So when you see the Venmo Cash App, that's how you support a channel if you're enjoying the content. Meanwhile, there's still a lot of uh, legacy media like New York Times. They lock all their shit behind the pay, PayPal, pay, uh, paywall. Meanwhile, we give you our content free, all of it free. And then we say, if you want to support a channel and help us grow, you can donate if you want to. That by definition, not a grift, because we're not even asking for your money. It's just an option. By definition, a grifter is someone who's operating by saying stuff they don't believe in in order to get money. We are doing the exact opposite. We are literally telling you and give you free content and like, hey, yo, here's the don't, if you're privileged, you want to help us out. Here's the, don here's the donation. 
So, I, so there's a great question because there are a lot of people, the new PSYOP in order to attack independent media is to try to attack everyone who goes outside the corporate sphere as grifters. But I, I want to get your thoughts on that, Carlo, because that's kind of what, um, that kind of like the debunking of that. They, they want to defang independent media because they know there's no way you can have a network without, like either I take corporate money or I have a, a, a large amount of patrons and a lot of them are, are privileged. Like not like telling poor people giving us uh, money to our network. It's, it's people that like, yo, I'm privileged in life. I love your message. I want to help uh, continue this platform. And that's it, right? And that's the answer I was hoping you'd give, to be honest, Nick, because I basically it's it's like PBS, right? This is public supported broadcasting. And without your help, we can't buy the new mic we need because the old microphone broke. Or we can't update our new sound system in order for the sound quality to come out clear so that when you're listening to us, it sounds better and it does not or this kind of stuff. Like your money actually goes back into the programming that you're actually consuming at this moment. So if you want to keep watching, it'd be helpful if you can spare a few bucks to help us keep doing this and not necessarily to help me start getting put money in the bank so, so I can end up buying, you know, a brand new six-figure car and post a selfie of myself on Twitter saying I finally got my dream car and I'm a leftist somehow, right? So <laughs> can you give me an example? Because I've heard, and I don't know who these people are. I I feel really ignorant about this stuff, but Vosh, who the hell is Vosh? And how come he seems like a grifter to me, even as a leftist? This is, uh, Caleb Maupin has a great book talking about how bread tube serves imperialism. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and listen, and it, I've been hearing that term bread tube. Is that like white that, people's YouTube, basically? Yes, it's pretty much the entire Vosh sphere. It's okay. the entire Vosh sphere. A lot of these people start out as gamers. Uh, they are on Twitch, and Gen Z loves them. Some gamers, they love watching yeah. gamers. They love watch. And once again, they're not judgment on them. I'm, I'm a younger millennial, so I don't necessarily get it. Um, but they love watching people play, play video games. <laughs> And then they, they will watch them do reaction content. And that's how like people like Vosh and Hassan got started. Okay. And I don't have much to back this up, right? I'm going to be honest. But I do think there's an active PSYOP where the establishment knows that Gen Z is extremely anti-capitalist and extremely anti-imperialist. Yeah. So if you have an entire generation that is becoming anti-capitalist and becoming anti-imperialist, the best thing you can do is have someone like Vosh who claims he's a socialist. He said, I'm a Marxist Leninist. Well, he don't say that. He, he hates tankies. But he, he, he says he's like, I'm, I'm on the left here now. Everyone who's left to me, they're actually so left there to the right. So they're actually to the right of me. So they they characterize themselves as a socialist to get the uh, anti-establishment Gen Z in. But then once they get them in, they will use their platform to advocate for CIA talking points. And Vosh in particular advocate for CIA talk, talking points on every single country. Every country, and whether it's the DPRK, whether it's Syria, whether it's China, whether it's Russia, he always, and this is the same with uh, Jank Uger, the same with Sam Cedar, they always just so happen to have the same foreign policy position as the Pentagon. Just so It just so happened that always the case, but they want to convince me that these are good faith actors. So I think this is just another way of the establishment co uh, 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 trying to fight this new age of information. Because when you look into this guy, these the people in Brett to his background, like Vosh, Ian Kalinsky, uh, Kalinsky, or whatever his name is, his parents are fucking wealthy. He lived in the man. He lived in the um, 
you know, what's what's the fucking famous mansion? I'm blanking on them. Um, damn, he lives he lives in like this super fancy neighborhood. I don't, it's super fancy. I don't know, I don't know why I'm blanking on name. Like the Bel Air, I'm just joking. Man. <laughs> like like Bel Air, Hamptons, it's one of those. It's one, okay. It's one of those. He come from a very wealthy family, and he come from connections. So isn't he dating someone from like one of the other shows also now? I I, I don't know. Um, I Minority know, Report or something. I know these people uh, motors operandi, and the reason why I speak out against them because I usually I'm like, all right, I'm gonna let you do your game guys thing. I don't care about you people playing video games and then pretend <laughs> to be socialist on. The, I don't care. Like if you want to pretend to be a socialist, you can do that, right? But it's when. There was marches for Medicare for all last year. Like we had marches for Medicare for all and Vosh and Hassan came out against it. And they were, and they were smearing the tactics. They was, sorry, they were smearing the Medicare for all march using the most bad faith shit lib tactics, right? And then they also came out against forced to vote. Then we at, at a revolutionary blackout, we helped, we hosted a general strike summit. Like, and not a general strike, it's literally a summit with a ton of labor organizers. Talk about it. Yeah, Hassan and Vosh came out against that. Why? They was like, God knows why. They was like, well, you, these people, they're just grifters. They're grifters, and they're just grifting, talk about labor, and they, oh, you guys want to talk to right wing? Like, it literally didn't even make sense, but that's, it's these examples I give you last year. That's when I, I went from not caring about these people to actively speaking out against them. Okay. That's when I realized their role. Their role is to be the socialists who speak out against any direct action. And then at the same time, they tell you to vote for Democrats every two years. So I, I mentioned this earlier on the show I, or in this segment. I don't have any proof, but they definitely have an ominous agenda that is designed to attack and delegitimize real grassroots activists because they are class loyal. Vosh comes from a rich family. Hassan is a millionaire. Cenk Uger is rich. And, and Hassan is his nephew. Like they are serving class and they are serving capital by doing what they're doing. And I come to that conclusion because their arguments against the March for America for all and their arguments against our general strike summit was so absurd. It had to be coming from nefarious intent. So that's my take on like Bosch and Brett as a whole. Yeah, anything else you want to add to that? Yeah, well, I was just going to say, even if you don't have the evidence, I just saw yesterday because one of my students uh, pushed me to watch this on Netflix because I was talking about it in class, not this particular issue, but it comes, you know, it, it intersects with some of the stuff we're talking about is the social dilemma on Netflix. It talks about the algorithm and big tech and stuff. Scott, if you haven't checked it out, I recommend it in terms of showing you how the actual big tech companies, and these are ex-big tech people that left Twitter, or left Facebook, that left Instagram, they left, and talk about like, Oh man, they are literally telling you what to think and anticipating and encouraging what you're doing in real life when you're not even on social media. So the fact that you're talking about this makes complete sense in the sense that if you're trying to make, a, if you have a for-profit social media company and you know that there's this one individual who has a million followers, who are you going to promote? The individual with a million dollars and try to give a message that softens the anti-capitalist pro-working class message? Or are you going to promote these other people who are saying that and have like maybe 10,000, 5,000, in my case, 17 followers? Uh, so 
in terms of just the tech industry and the algorithm, the algorithm is going to keep promoting that other message. So you don't even need a psychop. It's like capitalism is going to take care of capitalism. And if you're using something capitalism created to have an anti-capitalist message, it makes sure you're like a virus and it makes sure it throws enough antibodies in terms of lobbying, in terms of money, in terms of counter narratives in order to silence you. So yeah, this, that's such a great point. And that also backs up why I think this is a psyop because as someone who started a network this year and anyone in independent media will tell you this, if you are anti-capitalist, if you're anti-imperialist and you really challenge the establishment, hell, even if you're a YouTuber as a whole, even if you're not challenging the establishment, it's hard to be on the algorithm. It's hard to be picked up. They changed the algorithm like 10 years ago. So only authoritarian sources get promoted. Meanwhile, I'm not subscribed to Vosh, but I see his videos pop up. You would never, ever, ever, ever see a video of Revolutionary Blackout pop up if you're not subscribed. There are people who are subscribed to our channel, and they tell us they don't get notifications, and this is the suppression of left media. But not only do they not suppress Vosh, they actively promote him to people who are not subscribed to him. And then he's trans on Twitter all the time. And then you look, and this is something that a lot of people have been bringing up. Like, if you're trending, you got to have a certain amount of tweets about you in order to trend. Vosh would trend all day with only a thousand tweets about him. And that does not happen. Like, who is pushing the Vosh trend? So once again, I am being upfront. I don't have physical evidence, but there is legitimate, like, observations that you can make <laughs> that shows that these people are not good faith actors and they are serving an agenda, especially when you see their takes on, like, the Ukraine and Syria crisis that come up. Like, What? are you guys talking about like there's no way i can even accept you guys as good faith actors because if i did that that would be a waste of my bandwidth like it'd be a waste of my bandwidth to assume these people are acting in good faith and that's interesting because i think what we're doing here is taking an educated guess about what's going on and at the end of the day if youtube is pushing a watch video after seeing one of your videos essentially what the algorithm is saying it's like hey we understand you're anti-establishment you're watching uh anti-establishment anti-capitalist podcast how about this other anti-establishment podcast that won't talk about anti-capitalism but claims to be socialist and anti-establishment and it'll take you down that kind of gamer route as opposed to staying on point right staying on message yeah, yeah. That's a strategy, isn't it yeah the system works for a reason right mm -hmm. we're still here talking about the same stuff for a reason right the system has a really good way of healing itself one minor point uh, that I wanted to bring up, and this is something that I've been struggling with the last year in terms of like, we've been throwing the word Marxist around. And I remember listening and reading Huey P. Newton talk about like their, how the Black Panthers went from calling themselves Marxist to no longer calling themselves Marxist simply because they're like, you call yourself a Marxist, it means that you believe in everything one individual did and does. And I understand that you and I are losing like, well, I'm not, I'm not I don't even know everything that Mark Sitter does, but I understand the anti-capitalist argument and that's what I'm latching on to. But what are your thoughts about that? Because it made me reflect. It's like, maybe I should start talking myself, my talk, describing myself as an anti-capitalist and not necessarily a Marxist because people might immediately make certain assumptions about what that means. Any thoughts? Just top of your head. Oh, I don't, you gotta be strategic about who you talk to. Like when you watch our channel and I remember I talked to someone about this before, when you watch our channel, we were like super, we, are, we use all the super lefty terms like Marxism, anarchism, etc. Like when you're talking to the average person who works a nine to five, who got kids, right? They don't, they don't care about that. <laughs> like, okay. especially in the United States, when they are stream, like 
both people would consider himself a capitalist. Well, I think that I think that tied to changing. But then all you have to do is describe what you um, believe as a Marxist. And then people will be on your side. Like people will be on your side. So when I, I live in Missouri in a deep red state, and I, and I used to sell cars in Kansas. I used to talk to be conservative people all the time. And then I'm, I ask them, like, do you think people should have health care? Yeah, I think people should have health care. Do you think workers should be paid more? Yeah, I think workers should be paid more. I don't even have to call you a Marxist. I don't even have to use that language. But I will, I will say that's a Marxist. But for the sake of our channel, because we are educating people, we don't run away from those labels because we want to educate those people. But if you're actually okay. having a real conversation, um, no, you're not. And maybe sometimes it'd be good to bring it up. A lot of times, maybe it's not. Like, you just want to get the, uh, the, uh, the idea out there. Absolutely. And I hear what you're saying. It's like introduce them to that concept. And if they evolve beyond that, excellent. Yeah. To go left of that, fantastic. Yeah. But if they, they don't know that exists, first and foremost, it's like we need to get them to say that's okay. Being a Marxist doesn't immediately equal being a bad person. Yeah. And they're like, all you have to do is explain that Marxism is a critique of capitalism. That's essentially what it is. Yeah. So, like, if you're, if you're critical of capitalism, uh, you can consider yourself a Marxist. Now, there's something I've seen because I'm, I'm part of online discourse a lot. There's something that like communists do that I, that I don't like, <laughs> like Marxists do that, that I don't like, because it actually is a lot of, there's a big learning curve to be a Marxist because we are we are surrounded by capitalist propaganda from the day that we are born. Now I see people and, and, and I'm not talking about like average people, like pretty influential people. They're like, oh, you're not communist unless you restate a revolution. You're not communist unless you read this and read that. And I'm like, why are you guys putting a barrier to get people to join our movement? As a Marxist and as a communist, it's our job to educate people. Because if you're an average worker, as again, I always use this example. If you're working a, a job and you got two kids, do you really got time to restate the revolution? Do you really got time to read all this stuff? But let's say you're sympathetic to like anti-capitalist Marxist ideas, but you don't know everything about it. There are some people like, oh, he's not Marxist. He's not communist because you don't know everything about it. Why are you pushing people away? For, you want to pull people into communism and Marxism, so why are you having this gate? So our job is to educate people. So once you um, once you get people on your side and you get people realizing, like, okay, this system is not amazing, then you're like, oh, you're actually a Marxist. Like, may, then you can start slow rolling those uh, uh, those terms. Like, that's just my approach, and this is someone who talked to a ton of conservative people, a ton of liberals. I don't think there's a – I don't see the value of, like, leaning super hard for like hey i'm a socialist this is why you should be a socialist people even if you're right they'd be like <laughs> whether you're, you're right or not um yeah. no, and i hear that sometimes that can be an identity politics unfortunately it can become yeah. a version of identity politics right so then in terms of trying to understand this evolution of being an activist and taking on to social media versus people that are chasing the algorithm uh I'm trying to understand why certain leftists are starting to morph, as you say, like a bouncing to the right as a way of getting more views and trying to climb that social ladder in terms of the algorithm. Uh, just correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I, I, I don't understand, but I feel like Jackson Hinkle is on that road and it could be a very dangerous one for him because he identifies as a Marxist Leninist. Then I'm like, what? Looking at these Instagram photos of like, you know, he's half naked at the gym taking a selfie. It's like, what the hell kind of practice is that? Dude? Like, how does that encourage or influence? Like, and that's fine if that's just like personal stuff and you you merge them both. But that's where I get to like, I don't I don't get that. So maybe you're just like, eh, that's Jackson doing his thing, and that's what he does. Or maybe there's like, yeah, it could be problematic at times. Yeah, a revolutionary blackout. Um, and me and CJ talk about this. We we spoke about it on our show a few times. Like, I, there's a certain point where I had to say I'm a YouTuber, but when we first started off, we legitimately didn't consider ourselves YouTubers. Like, right. we, we would tell people, like, we are activists who just so happen to have a platform. 
So when they had the Mecca Fraud March, I, I gave you, uh, I, I share with you. I don't know how familiar you are with that event, but we had fifty marches in, in uh, so we had uh, marches in fifty different cities, and we have five members of our group that gave speeches, including me. I gave a speech at the Kansas City uh, Mecca Fraud March. You had CJ who started a mutual aid organization. You have Rome that is touring all over the country, feeding all yeah. See, we that. just so happened to have a YouTube page. Now, I guess I, there's a certain point where I got to call myself a YouTuber or I'll be delusional. But that's really it. Same now. here. And I, I don't have any followers. <laughs> yeah, like I, we can't keep using that line forever. But like so like we just we are activists that just so happen to have a platform. And we are, we will never abandon that. And we have uh, dreams of grandeur, to, to put it to put it lightly, because we just started less than a year ago. We only got 15,000 subscribers. Um, imagine like a tour for the poor that is being financed by a channel that has a hundred thousand subscribers. Like, and when you look at TYT, like we had a general strike summit, imagine if we have 5 million subscribers and we are uh, hosting mutual aid events, taking advantage of those five, like that is something that the boutique left, the established left independent media sphere. They never do that. Like I'll actually want to do on the ground reporting. I want to be on strikes and, and on location talking to workers. I can't do that because I don't have the resources. We don't get paid any money promos we split everything we, like we have a channel with 15,000 subscribers but there's like seven of us so we split everything which is means nothing essentially right. so if we had more resources we would literally show a lot of these channels how the fuck it's done like there are a lot of channels that have way more resources than us but they don't do nothing they don't do anything okay and because we view ourselves as activists with a platform if only we grew we would see us doing mutual aid events food bank drive hell we may we may even live stream them so anyway, that's kind of like our mindset versus like the person who just want to climb and get subscribers and get following. Right. A lot of people who they just want to get right wing clips. That's what they do, right? Yeah, and that's what I'm trying to see. That was a very diplomatic answer to the question that I asked. So good job doing that because it's you know Jackson for me is a case study. It's like I'm afraid of what this could evolve into, and you know there's a lot of competition, and I don't I don't know Jackson's politics. I'm trying to figure that out, but I think you're right, nevertheless, in the sense that, and I think one of your guests recently, uh, the last guest you had, Ron, um, the comedian uh, on your show, CJ, what's that? Yeah, Rob Picone. He made a really good point back about World War II and FDR and the New Deal. It's like the reason why they passed the New Deal is because they saw that the working class was angry and enough communists and Marxists and anarchists and socialists and just working class folk got along enough to actually pose a collective threat. Right. So there wasn't all this acrimony and all this kind of like she said, he said, and going fight, fighting back and forth. They were actually unified. And that's what forced the system to actually make some, you know, systemic changes. So I understand that in many ways, like we're trying to create a platform we're trying to get and other people are, are trying to do the same, whether or not they do it the same with our motivations, we can't speak for them. But I think many people are trying to amplify their message. And at that point, you're going to want to get clicks. But Different people go about that differently. Uh, yeah, so I, yeah. I see. Go ahead. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, it's, it's hard to read into everyone's intentions. Um, but yeah, there's some people that they just want clicks more than anything. There's some people who they rationalize it as, yeah, we may have uh, clickbaity shows every once in a while, but we are using that to get people in so we can deliver them a message. But that's a very fine line to cross. That's a very fine line to thread. Um I know I had Jackson on the show a few times. I talked to him. Uh, I think he I think he believes what everything he says. I th- I believe so. 
Um, but we also got to remember Jackson is a really young guy. He's about 22, 23, who's been uh, promoted to prominence. So I personally, I always try to give people a chance to grow. And uh, even if he won't have any criticism of, uh, of him, I, I will hope that he continue to grow. And I also believe people should continue to put pressure. Like if you if you have criticism of Jackson, you have criticism of us, anyone, uh, we can't have this toxic positivity that is afraid of critique because Lennon is famous, is a famous left in fighter. <laughs> Uh, the civil rights movement, which is one of the most underreported things, is the infighting that was going on in the civil rights movement. It destroyed the most, it. Yeah, the, the most famous example is uh, like the criticism that Malcolm X had on MLK, like that, mm-hmm. that, that. But that was actually like those kind of things are are needed because MLK said, "Oh, actually, Malcolm had a point." So at the same, I, I don't want to. I see what uh, your point is, and I think it's important because we've got to continue to challenge people, make sure they stay on the path because we saw what happened when the left was so busy with toxic positivity, they didn't do that. Like we gave Jank Uger a ton of benefit of the doubt, even though he took $20 million from the Krakenbergs, right? We can't do that anymore. So I try, I, 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 I know Jackson, so I, I am admit, I am a little bit biased, but I, I think we got to continue to put pressure on him and ourselves. So there's not any feeling that, that we are going to sell out. So I think that's kind of my position on that. Oh, cool. Uh, I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to throw any shade or trying to, you know, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, and throw them under. So, okay. So let's move on to some of the issues that we've heard. Uh, we, we started talking about like the freedom convoy a little bit and uh, kind of like where, how leftists are fighting over that. Uh, I don't know if you want to say something about that at this point, considering where the conversation is going, because uh, the next topic I want to get you, and I don't want to keep you here too long, but uh, is electoral politics. So I'm going to give you a choice, Nick. What do you want to talk about? Freedom Convoy or electoral politics in the United States? Because uh, my last episode in my podcast is that there's no real left in this country that's equivalent to the far right. So we have Trump and they want to put Bernie Sanders as a kind of counterbalance. I'm like, hell no, Bernie's left of Biden and that's it. There is no far left because this country will not allow for a far left. And if there is one, it's the people that keep going to the streets and taking to the streets. That's the far left It's literally the people. Yeah, yeah, that's. That's such a great point. And I tell people all the time, Bernie was the, he was the moderate choice. Like he was like, to me, he was like the the farthest right that I could, that especially now that I could even consider, uh, he was like the compromise candidate, probably for the, uh, the better term. Um, but to me, any, anyone who want to go through these neoliberal police state endorsing parties, that is unbelievably inefficient. Like uh, CJ is reporting on this now. Uh, Bernie Sanders in this movement raised $270 million. Can you imagine what we could have done for the working class with $270 million? A lot of houseless people would have shelter. A lot of people at food banks would have their belly filled too. Yeah. Yeah. So, a lot of, yeah absolutely. Yeah, so when I criticize electoral politics, I see a lot of people don't understand my criticism. When they're like, oh my God, Nick, you you don't believe that we should have any electoral politics? No, I'm advocating for strong, for better resource management for the left. So does it make sense for us to spend millions of dollars on these elections that are rigged already instead of building uh, and having funds for strike programs? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like direct actions. Like imagine wrong. I mean, a, a strike fund, just like corporations have, we're going to get lawsuits. So we have our lawsuit fund. You could have a strike fund anytime. Hey, don't worry about paying your bills. We got $3 million in the strike fund. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And you ha- people say, well, well, at least if you have a giant Bernie campaign, if you have the progressive, it, at least create the movement. And this is why I say you can't do that through electoralism, especially through the Democratic Party. I actually want to bend a little on this a little bit more when you talk about Please. third party. And then I, I'll bend on you on this a little more. And we can work more on that. But the idea of doing this through the Democratic Party is absurd. And I'll tell you guys why. What happened to that so-called movement that Bernie started? Is he using that email list to rally people against the crimes on the border? Is he, is he using that email list to rally against the crimes the Biden administration is doing in Palestine? Bernie Sanders built this movement and killed it immediately. He killed it and then trying to funnel people into a warmongering criminal Democratic Party. And then you have people like AOC who even donated money that we gave her and gave it to CIA Democrats like Connor Lamb, for example. So that's this is a betrayal of the level. And I try. Like, I, I, I'm a believer of the scientific method. You, you have tri- trial and error, right? I tried taking over the Democratic Party, and it failed. And not only did it fail, it failed in epic fashion. Epic fashion. So I don't know how anyone can continue this strategy unless they are just in love with electoral politics and they are privileged to the point where they are not affected by this. Because that's the only people I see advocate for this electoral politics strategy are people who, the people who love the game of electoral politics. And I give Brianna Joy Gray all the credit in the world for having CJ on because uh, Brianna Joy Gray and um, Katie Hopper and her friends had this seizing the house event that CJ and our network was extremely critical of, which, which is why I give Brown Joy and Katie Hopper a ton of credit because they had CJ on to explain his criticism on, on Brown Joy Collins show, which would never happen. Now, once again, I'm not shitting on them because they, that, this would never happen, right? <laughs> but our criticism of that event was if you look at all these people, which again, I like a lot of these people, mine's Marianne Williamson, but I look at all, I like all these people, but they all comfortable. Every single one of these people on that panel, they are not poor. They're not even of the working class. All of them are privileged. So you guys see how you're more likely to still believe in the electoral politics strategy if you are if you can benefit by making live streams about it, if you're not impacted by the uh, the actual tragedy of the Democrat Party, what they do to our community, it's easier for you to sell the idea. And we got to reject that and start thinking about other strategies and other ways we can challenge power right now. Because I don't have all the answers. Like if you're like, Nick, what would you do instead? I have a few theories. <laughs> I don't know if they're going to work. But we should start testing those theories now so we can start making adjustments. Because what are we going to do? Wait? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. So uh, that's, in a nutshell, my thoughts on electoral politics. It's about resource management. It's about resource management. One last caveat I want to throw, because people always ask this question. If there's a progressive running, and I, and I think they represent me, should I vote for them? Once again, it's all about resource management. Me, my position, I a little bit to the right of my brothers and sisters. Some, some people would say, no, you never, ever vote for that person, right? Me... If you, my position is, because I live right next to the library, and it legitimately only takes me five minutes to vote. Right. <laughs> I am very, very lucky, because that is not the case in America. Right. So me, personally, it makes no sense for me not to do that. Like, it's not an inconvenience in your life. Yeah. But I tell people, if you got to take time off work, if it takes even like 30 minutes to an hour where it inconveniences you, don't do it. <laughs> like, it's a waste of time. Like, don't take a day. What are you going to do? Take a day off work? Take a day off work? Hurt your finances? to vote for some motherfucker who don't care about you. So my position is, if you can do it and it's really quick and it's not inconvenience, you might as well vote for the bad choice. But if it inconveniences you even one inch, don't do it. So, right. so what are your thoughts on this, right? You, you've, you've, you've heard this, uh, you've used this term on your, uh, on 
on your various uh, discussions, uh, duopoly, right? A lot of people don't even understand that the United States is in many ways a duopoly, that both parties at the end of the day answer to the people that fund their campaigns and fund the parties essentially. And that's where you have corporations donating to both parties, right? Facebook, Microsoft, they're, they're playing it safe and they're making sure all their, our, uh, all their bases are covered. So, you know, you donate to Pelosi as well as McConnell. So at the end of the day, you have this duopoly and, part of what I'm the argument I'm trying to make is that this duopoly if it answers to money and it's centered around that that is called corporatism or it's a form of corporatism and once you have a state that functions like a neo-corporatism or disaggregated corporatism where you have these little iron triangles controlling certain sectors of the 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 economy in certain sectors of our society, how it functions, for example the tech companies and the algorithm this kind of stuff that's a form of fascism yes it, Yes, the, the International Encyclopedia of Social Sciences says corporatism definition, see fascism. Yes, I love that. I love the fact you made that point because I, I've, been, I've been saying the same thing as well. To, just to illustrate, because you said it in a very in a, in a perfect way, but it's just to illustrate our point. You have giant weapon defense contractors that donate to corporate media, right? And then those same corporate media will give nothing but amazing coverage to war criminals like joe biden i have a lot of criticism of bernie but you see the difference in how they cover biden versus bernie oh yeah and then you have a lot of the weapon defense contractors that give jobs to biden allies lloyd austin come from weapon defense contractor now he's the defense secretary so how is that not state media and i and, and when people always say oh my god other countries got state media we literally have our media funded by weapon defense contractors who then get jobs in the government like these things are intertwined in a way that no other society have. Like we are one of the most corrupt society. I'm saying one of the most because I'm not a historian, but I will argue we are the most corrupt. But like <laughs> we're one of the most insane, corrupt, self-serving systems that when I call for a general strike, when I come, when I call for shutting down and destroying the system, I'm not doing that just because just to be edgy. I'm doing I am saying that because I quite literally don't not un see any other way to untangle the corruption in our system because it's so interweb with each other other than destroying it and rebuilding. Because once again, I tell you all these deep, all these contractors, I just gave you one example. And, and to cut myself short, like there's many like big pharma, the prison industrial complex, like corporations and capital as a whole completely hijacked our government. And there's no way to get it out. I want you guys to realize that there's no way as we know to get it out because this is the argument they will make. They will say, all we gotta do is vote for more Democrats. Because people like Chris and Cinema and Joe Manchin are corrupt. The bone. Yeah. So I'm gonna explain the concept to you guys called the rotating. But Chris and Cinema started out as a Green Party member, and she tweeted support of a minimum wage increase as of 2014. Right. So it's very funny how Chris and Cinema is a progressive until the party needs her not to be. You see. You see what I mean. So if you believe that we can change things by just having more Democrats and these same people will acknowledge that Christian Sinema was bought out. My question to these people is what's stopping the next Democrat from being bought out? If you acknowledge that it could happen, right? So that's the last example I'm going to get because we can get into this all day. But I love the fact that you, you call it out because that's what I do is we are already in a corporate fascist state and people used to get mad at me because I refuse to vote for Jim Crow Joe over Donald Trump because they say, oh, you're enabling fascists. I'm like, <laughs> you want bigger flashes than Biden? How dare you? 
And who's throwing more money at the military at the moment, right? In order to put to encourage the police to who was the three strikes and you're out guy. <laughs> so uh, just to build off of that and kind of hopefully wrap this up for your sake. Uh, defunding the police, you brought that up, right? That was a very strong Democratic campaign message. Like, we hear you. We're taking knees on D.C. I love that picture of Pelosi and Schumer. Everyone's taking a knee wearing their, like, Africana, you know, scarves or whatever the hell they're wearing. And uh, at the end of the day, Nancy Pelosi just came out like a month ago to a few weeks ago on air. And there was Stephanopoulos saying like, yeah, Cory Bush, whatever we appreciate. But our position is we do not stand for defunding the police. Right. So we went from abolish the police to defund the police, to reform the police, to actually giving more funding for money in the police. Did you know here in Minnesota, we're actually uh, just fast track sixty five million dollars for just recruitment and retention in the state. A million dollars of that is going to go into advertisements, recommending people to pick up law enforcement as a second job. What? That's what we want. Gotta, we want I tired. Gotta, yes, please look I it up. On that. I, I actually did not know about that. I got to do a segment on that. that work, is- please come to work tired from your first job so you can get your gun and go police people that are going through a mental health crisis or whatever. That's the one job that you should be prohibited from moonlighting is being law enforcement because you have a gun. The military won't let you do that. Why can't you get away with it being in law enforcement? So I totally agree with that point. CBS just published a news story trying to blame inflation on the Ukraine invasion. <laughs> that's just speaking to your point about like corporate media and all this other stuff. Like that's the grift. And the answer to that is always like, well, just vote for our party and we'll fix that. It's like, yeah, right. We're seeing the fix right now. And all it does, just to speak to what you were talking about, it radicalizes people when you believe in Bernie and Bernie betrays you or we can't pass the college. Oh, no, but two years community colleges. Never mind. Loan student loan cancellation. Oh, never mind. Uh, healthcare, pharmaceutical costs. Oh, never mind. We're not we're busy right now with the war. Sorry. It's like, really? That's where we ended up. It's like all that money is going to go towards that more military spending towards that when you could be actually and defunding. Like I'm I'm let's just talk defunding. That's extra money on top of what they're already getting. That's what we want back. Don't you don't have to completely t- just give us the extra 65 million and let's re- distribute that in social programs to people that actually need it. I bet you that crime rates will go down as a consequence. The statistics yeah. show it. And that's actually the road to abolition. I, I am a co-founder of 10 Demands. And what is the biggest criticism you always see a defund in, in abolitionism? You notice that they never have a song. Uh, yeah, the crime rate would go. That's one of them, as you mentioned. But they also will mention, they were like, oh, my God, these crazy lefties. These crazy lefties have no plan. What are we going to do once we get rid of the police? They don't have no plan. It's that, it is quite literally the exact opposite. It, and, and what you mentioned, once we actually start reinvesting in other programs, because I actually believe in people and the people who believe in giant police budgets, they are inherently racist because they, their belief is no matter how much aid I give you, if you're like, especially when they talk about black people, Latino people, their mindset is, and I'm talking about Joe Biden too, the conservative, the average liberal, no matter how much we improve your life, you are inherently bad and you're inherently criminal. Do you think they believe that about white people? <laughs> no, they think that about black people because they believe in rehabilitation for their people. Joe Biden's son was a fucking crackhead or something like that. <laughs> so they believe in rehabilitation right for white people, but not us. That's a health crisis now. That's not a drug issue, right? It's not a law enforcement yeah. issue. It's like a health crisis now. The opioid is a health crisis. Crack, bunch of black people just wanting to get high. And, CIA and had nothing to do with that. Yeah, and I'm going to explain to you guys why the Democratic Party is so dangerous. So the Democratic Party 
they hijack and kill movements. The Republican Party and the conservatives are intellectual lightweights who at the end of the day, they always they, and they always lose the battle of ideas. And I'm dead honest. Like what what battle and movement did the conservatives win on their own? Like they lost the women's suffragists movement, they, 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 they marriage, they lost gay marriage. Like they constantly lose. You guys know what stops these victories from happening sooner? The neoliberal establishment. The Joe, Joe Biden came out against gay marriage multiple times in his career. They can't Barack Obama and them. Well, I, I, let me let me let me correct myself here. Hillary Clinton didn't come out for uh, for gay marriage until like 2013, 2014. Famously during a debate, was she like, "I don't support gay marriage." So this is a an example of social movements being held back because of the neoliberal. So when you had the anti-war movement after George Bush uh, Jr., that was killed by Barack Obama. You had the Me Too movement that was killed by Joe Biden. The immigration justice movement that was killed by Joe Biden. So I am I do not believe in the lesser two evils. That's a that's a fa- logical fallacy in my opinion. They have they serve two different functions. And based on what I've seen in my lifetime, the Democratic Party is the more effective evil. Because do you guys think the the that Donald Trump will be able to neuter and kill the Black Lives Matter movement? No, it grew and and there was one of the largest protests in human history under Donald Trump. Joe Biden came in and the Democratic Party killed it just like that. Without a blink and without a blink of an eye. So what they did, they invited George Floyd to the White House. Oh, I believe in Black Lives Matter. I believe in, in the police brutality. So they invited George Floyd family to the White House, introduced a George Floyd bill that gave the police more money. <laughs> I don't know why. Well, I do know why. I do know why. But mm-hmm. that is the exact moment that anyone who anywhere near sympathetic to the Democratic Party should have left if you're black. I know why they don't, because propaganda and a lot of people don't even know this kind of stuff. That's right. Like that's when right. I tell people black people this shit, they get pissed. I, I like I get so many people away from the Democratic Party because when I tell black people this basic stuff, they never know. They get pissed. But my point is, you guys see how they can kill that movement, and now they are actively running on funding the police more. Heading in twenty twenty two, Eric Adams, their boy, he's running on a giant Ooh. national security state. So I'm gonna pass you, Carl. I can run on this all day, but you, but you guys see the Democratic Party, they take any movement, they pretend to be on our side, they kill it, and then they implement it more. Yeah. No, I completely agree because people don't understand that liberalism comes from a specific socio, you know, political economic philosophy called neoliberalism, which is about deregulating the economy, the corporations, et cetera, like that, which happened in the 80s. So by the time Clinton inherited and Clinton was the first awful president that just picked up Reagan and said, like, screw it, let's go with this. Right. And so suddenly you have NAFTA, you have all this stuff that is essentially killing the working class, killing unions, and they're selling the ideology that this is more freedom. This is just freedom. Right. We're more freedom and we're going to control the border against human beings. Don't worry, they won't come across. But all those products are going to come and flow. And so people, I don't think, understand the connection between neoliberalism as a political philosophy and liberals, because they think liberal is like, I am liberal. I am left of a moderate. It's like, yeah, but the circle's too big now. You don't understand you're all in the same cage. You're just in different sections of the cell. But it's still one big cell and you are all in it, right? So you're not differentiating yourself in that re- in regard. And so I think it's that's where the grift lies because Malcolm X said it. I mean, I'd rather just have... the the racist who's a racist up front, then the liberal who pretends they're not a racist gives you a big hug and then stabs hey, you in the Carl. back. Hey, Carlos, end old story. Once again, I sold cars in Kansas. I'm telling you, the best customers I had was rednecks who I know was racist. <laughs> like, I know for a damn fact that these people did not like black people. But, they, like, there's almost like a mutual understanding. These people were actually nice to me. Like, they like, oh, fuck, a black. And then they try to be cool. But I'm telling you, once the most racist and condescending people 
that I know are the Pete Buttigieg style liberal. You know, the people that think they're not racist because they voted for Barack Obama. These are some of the, the most condescending and racist people. And if you talk to people that in the red states that, that have been around in customer service, they will tell you the same exact thing. At least in my circle, that's anecdotal. But wh- one thing I want to say is, well, because I love that you brought up neoliberalism. Uh, one thing I always love to do to conservatives to kind of troll them, because <laughs> I outflank them on a lot of their issues they claim they care about. So I tell conservatives, like, bro, you're not, you're not a conservative. You're not a fiscal conservative. You're a neoliberal. You don't believe me? Look it up. Quite literally, look up the definition of neoliberal. That applies to Trump supporters. When you look at the Republican Party and conservatives, they're not fiscally conservative because they support giant military budgets. They support giant police budgets. Defund the police and defund the police and the military start out as a right-wing libertarian idea. Well, I wouldn't say start off. I think maybe I need more research than that. I wouldn't say start off, but they were supported by right-wing libertarian. I would say that. So they are not even fiscal uh, conservative. They are neoliberals because neoliberals believe in a giant national security state that and deregulation and capitalism. Global economy, right? Export labor. Absolutely. And that is literally what the Republican Party stands for. So I, I talk to conservatives. I troll with them a little bit. I'm like, you're so you're a neoliberal. They're like, and then they mean like, what? Did yeah. I pull up the definition? And I'm and, like, this is what you not believe in. And who are the poster politicians of neoliberalism? Reagan and Thatcher. So you can't get away from the conservatives being connected to this political economic model, right? Less regulation in government, less regulation of the economy, let the market decide what happens. And I'm like, yeah, if you're for that on the democratic or conservative side, you're basically a neoliberal, regardless of what you want to call yourself. Cause it doesn't matter. Or which is reaction to that is always hilarious. Yeah. That's <laughs> I can imagine the faces. And I just found out that Ilan Omar's, you know, one of the squad here in Minneapolis, uh, that her political influence and inspiration was margaret thatcher do you know that yeah we co- we covered the interview she oh said. did you all right it's, <laughs> it's one of, it's it's one of those character revealing moments like i can't i can't stress that enough like i try to get people benefit doubt but when you say shit like that that's oh giant character revealing moment yeah and i saw your tweet today about the squad giving the speech after the state of the union that's going to be a really interesting moment on i can't wait to cover that offense so let's I want them to prove me wrong quickly yeah. because it seems like because I'm just reading the article. It seems like their job when they give the response to the, the State of the Union will be to cover for Biden by blaming the rotating villain I just told you about mm. and how oh my god obstructionist Republicans. That is not the problem I have with Biden, and I don't want to get to it too much longer. But the the problem I have with Biden is his violence, the state violence that has nothing to do with the legislative branch. You guys understand the commander in chief is in charge of the executive branch and the military. So when I have criticism of him as a president, as someone in charge of the executive branch, I have criticism of him funding multiple genocides. I have criticism of him funding ICE more. I have criticism of him funding the police more. That has nothing to do with the rotating villain like the squad they're about to do. And once again, if they don't do this, I'll be happy. But it seems like they're going to try to deflect all Biden's wrongdoing. Well, anyway, so I, I, I kind of spiraled there. But no, 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 you're cool. Because they're, they're going to try to... They're, they're gonna try to basically if not resuscitate uh maintain on life support the democratic party agenda right by explaining away why certain things have not come to realization that were promised during the campaign trail because the midterms are coming up and it's going to be very important to resurrect some of those messages and promises and all all we need is just one more vote one more senator one more representative and we're going to be good to go and everything that we said we promised is going to come true is going to come true and we'll be dealing with that for decades at this point in terms of promises made and it just reminds me of the fact that and i think you know in many ways we can end on this note that you don't get 
people don't understand this. And you brought up the role that propaganda plays. Uh, I come from a red state too, right? Arizona, which is weirdly blue right now. And I, I'd say more purplish than Cinema's there. And uh, and Blake was there, which is interesting. We're like, Jeff Blake just said, like, I'm done with the Republican Party. Peace out. And I'm leaving. And uh, we all know the reasons why. It was basically the, uh, the Trump effect. What I like to say is that People like you and me get radicalized because we grow up in red states. And so we see racism up front, right? Arizona, uh, Missouri, what Kansas, it's in your face. Here, for example, down in places like that, my saying is like, it's too hot in Arizona to wear sheep's clothing. So the wolf, this is the wolf. Like it's too hot to be putting that shit. But in Minnesota, which is a blue state, Democratic governor, Minneapolis, Democratic mayor, you know, it's Democratic senators that are moderate at best, right? Here, everyone's walking around wearing sheep's clothing. And the reality is that they're, they're not as sheepish as they're pretending to be at the end of the day. They, they're, they're, they're holding hands with wolves across the aisle. <laughs> and you live that in a red state and it radicalizes you and eventually you end up being like, I would say in your case, an organic intellectual as Gramsci theorized, right? Somebody who is not educated by a party, someone who's not indoctrinated through a college education, but rather reads on their own, thinks on their own, lives and thinks about their experiences and then starts to theorize what that means in terms of politics, in terms of agency and getting to that uh, democratic justice uh, I would say maybe society, or if not, at least smaller communities that are practicing that kind of stuff. So I just want to say that it's been a great time talking to you. I hope we, we can it. reconnect. Yeah, I hope we can reconnect down the road at some point. Uh, but yeah, I think, yeah, you know, after speaking to you, I feel a lot better about YouTube activism, which I'm a part of, but since I don't have any following, I don't feel as guilty. But if I had 12K, I'd be like, oh, damn, now I feel responsible with people. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Keep up the good work. Where can people follow you, find you if they're interested? And I'll put this stuff up on the screen. Yeah, we I, we got we on Revolutionary Blackout. We're on Facebook, but we are biggest on YouTube, but we got a lot of different platforms. So make sure you follow Revolutionary Blackout. Also on Twitter, Social CMA. Uh, make sure you guys check us out as well. And um, yeah, it was it was a fun conversation. I didn't I didn't honestly know what to expect because I because <laughs> you reached out to me and I'm like, oh, this is doing academia. I didn't, I didn't know where you was going to lay on the floor. I was like, oh, man, it's going to be interesting. <laughs> but after, once we got started, I was like, oh, this is a, this is a fun conversation. So um, we kind of – Not bad. I not bad. I got to definitely have you on because uh, – Yeah, so I'd be happy to, man. But so so not bad for an academic, right? We're not all academics are bad. <laughs> yeah, I was just like – because there's this there's, – and I guess you would know more than me, but you, you know, like, the main right-wing narrative is that academia is, like, filled with crazy lefties. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> with capitalists if it were capitalist zionist like dr cornell west was, was denied tenure at harvard because he spoke out in, in in favor of palestinians but you guys think like elite academia is lefty that's that's the only reason why like, i don't know i don't know what to expect with this guy but it was a great conversation <laughs> all right cool uh yeah and uh i'll hit you up and i'll send you some stuff that uh i've done so whenever you have a chance to look at it in terms of identity politics and if you're interested in that we can have that conversation at some point oh, yeah, yeah, definitely definitely man definitely but anyway good to be on all right so, great conversation all right thank you nick for joining us and uh good luck with the work that you're doing wish you the best thank you carlos and that'll do it for today's episode. I believe this is episode eight of the Identity Paradox. Uh, please make sure to tune in next time. Uh, hopefully we'll have another special guest as we did today. Uh, thanks and goodbye. 
Oh, and don't forget to please subscribe to future episodes if you enjoyed today's. Thanks.